With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to episode 85 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we begin, we just wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped us out since our last episode. Either by shouting us out on social media, reaching out to us, leaving a review, or by joining our Patreon page. And enjoying all of the extra content that we have available for you there. If you haven't already, we would love it if you could leave us a review or spread the word. We would love to grow our listenership. And if you're feeling extra generous, you could join our Patreon page and get two bonus episodes a month. And you can do that at patreon.com slash couple. And just a little caveat to the beginning of this episode, we are currently in the middle of setting up our office in the new house. So if our audio is a little off and it does sound a little echoey, we apologize. Yeah, right now we're in a weird transition because we want to be able to make the office actually more into like a studio, but we're trying to do that slowly because just we have we still have some boxes in places where they shouldn't be and things like that. So we're just trying to get everything together. So just bear with us for a little longer. Yeah, we're waiting for um, like the acoustic pads and stuff to come in. Right now we have our towels taped to the wall. So <laughs> yeah, it's, a little budget. <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. I hope no one sees them through the windows. They're no. like, our new neighbors are so weird. Why now we're going to be the weirdos. <laughs> yeah, why are they hanging towels on the walls? <laughs> <laughs> and something else we really want to set up in this office is... A way to record videos so if you are a patreon supporter um, you're going to see this new feature coming to you guys soon where we're going to be um, recording videos of us kind of going through true crime news as it's happening in real time and just like updating you on all of that stuff so we're actually really excited to do that yeah we figured it was it's just something different that we can provide and something that you guys might like to see so we're just gonna see how that goes yeah So now um, for our final piece of housekeeping before we get into today's episode, we want to talk to you about October, our favorite time of the year. Um, I know we're still in September, but if you have been listening, you know that once a year we do our listener story episode in October. So this is the time of year when we really start collecting those stories. Now your story that you submit to us can be a supernatural story or it could just be a story about something Um, that happened to you or someone you know that's involving a crime or a connection to a crime in some way. You can send your submissions to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And if we do use your story on the show, we send you a $25 Amazon gift card. Yeah, I mean, it's a really nice way of, uh, you know, giving back to you guys um, for your stories. And also just to, you know, you know, just to get everybody involved, you know, it's kind of like you're here with us, you know, and Um, we enjoy doing it every year. So yeah, we've always become really close friends with the people that actually even share the story sometimes too. So it's cool and it's nice to interact with our listeners in new and fun ways. So we are planning on doing that episode at the end of October. So we're going to take submissions of episodes until October 23rd. But I mean, if you hear this late, 
at any time in the year, you can always submit stories to us and we can save them for like the following October. Like we already have one submission that somebody actually sent us um, back in January. Yeah. And it's actually pretty cool. You know why? Because it's this guy's birthday at the end of October. So we'll be doing that around my birthday time, hopefully. The 29th, by the way, for anybody who wants to know. What so. else is in October, John? Um, there's a couple things. Um, our um, one-year uh, anniversary. Okay. Um, your birthday, wow. which is on the 3rd. What days? Uh, okay, oh. your well, your birthday's on the 3rd. Okay. Um, our wedding anniversary is on the 5th. Wow, you're good. Um, and my birthday is on the 29th. And I got a couple of cousins here and there and friends that are also in October. So I, I try to do a pretty good job remembering that. Yeah, that October's stuff. an exciting month for us because yeah. we have so much to do and celebrate. It's true. We actually are also this October kind of, I guess... It's going to sound super lame, but we're reshooting our wedding pictures because our... Listen, guys, we tried to save money on our wedding photographer and never do that. No, don't don't (laughs) think that by saving, like cutting a corner like that, you're going to be happy because we were happy with everything except the one area where we cut a corner. So don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. We have like no photos, just me and John. We don't even have photos with our family. None of me getting ready. And the photos that we do have, they're really... They're shaky. They're shaky. Not edited. Yeah, I don't know. And, like, it's really not flattering at all. Like, uh, you know, it's just not nice. (laughs) Well, yeah, like, the angles are totally bad. But anyway, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So we're doing that in October, too. So we're looking forward to actually having wedding pictures on the wall. Okay, so are you ready for the episode, John? Let's do it. Interstate 80 connects many cities and towns across the United States. But arguably the most beautiful stretch of the highway is the connection between Reno, Nevada and Sacramento, California, as it passes through the Tahoe National Forest. But that long stretch of peaceful highway lined with ponderosa pines became a hunting ground in 1997 when a deranged and drug-fueled couple chose to prey on unsuspecting women. It would take a manhunt to take them down, but no sentence given would ever be able to take away the pain from the lives that they ruined. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Although they are not much talked about, James DeVigio and Michelle Michaud are one of the most evil set of killers to have existed in the United States. Their depravities knew no limits, and their M.O. was all over the place, as was their victimology. Something that I find to be the most terrifying is the fact that the couple had only met in 1996, and their crimes began in the late summer of 1977. Within the few months that they were active, they accumulated six victims. The escalation, I believe, is a combination of their sadistic fantasies and their addiction to meth, paired with the stressors in both of their lives. Within the first few months of their meeting, DeVigio moved into Michaud's home, a tri-level in Sacramento, California. However, once together, they were a horrible influence on each other. And this only fueled their deep addictions, both to drugs and sex. Soon the couple stopped paying all of their bills 
and Michaud was evicted from her residence in August of 1997. After this, the couple began living in a green Dodge minivan that they shared. But before we get into the horrors that this couple committed, let's get into who they are. James Anthony DiVigio was born in 1960 in San Francisco, California. His childhood and early adult life were not pleasant, and it is where he developed his proclivity for sadism, as well as his deep disdain for females. His mother was a very domineering person. She was aggressive, abusive, and controlling. She was also involved in numerous sex crimes involving adolescents. Now, it sounds like if there were ever to be an environment in which a sexual sadist were to be developed, that it would be within this home. However, when delving into DiVigio's past, it's unclear when his violent tendencies began. And it's also unclear exactly what crimes his mother committed because there's no documentation about that. The fact that she committed these crimes and was a suspect in sex crimes against adolescents was just something that was referred to in court documents. So we don't know exactly what took place or if DiVigio himself kind of went through any abuse. That's really interesting because you would think that there would be like some kind of trail as to what she might have been charged with or involved with is what I'm saying, right? Because if she was involved, there would be some sort of trail, right? Yeah, I would I would think so. But I mean, that has to do with the investigation and probably the time period and maybe records being lost or not kept well or the charges not sticking. Or maybe she was maybe helping them as well. Maybe. I don't know. She got. They became an informant. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And that's why they kind of kind of ceased to exist. Possible. I see what you're saying. So one really interesting thing that is going to take place when DiVigio is 14 years old in 1974 is that he was considered a suspect in the brutal death of a classmate. Now, this is a 14-year-old. His classmate's body was found in an embankment. She had been strangled and bludgeoned in a vicious attack. It could not be determined whether or not the young girl had been raped. DiVigio had claimed that at one time he considered this girl his girlfriend, and investigators had their sights on someone else for the crime, a man named Marvin Much. He was later convicted and sentenced as an adult. He was to spend his life in prison. However, in 2016, Much had been exonerated, and it was proven that the evidence that was used to convict him, a set of fingerprints, actually did not belong to him at all. That's really interesting. And we know that this man doesn't has like a hatred towards women. So that's interesting. Right. And I think that we're going to see, um, although the victim was beaten severely, she um, her cause of death was asphyxiation. And we're going to see a little bit later on that that is a, another cause of death that we're going to have in this case. So I think in reflection, maybe police, although it did probably seem not possible at the time that a 14 year old would have committed that crime they maybe should have paid a little bit more attention to DiVigio and um it's still you know that question is still out in the open like did he kill this girl was it like like where it started like the origin of like where he started his crime spree yeah I mean because that could be it could be possible so that is still kind of open-ended, and it's something we'll get into. After we get through all of these crimes, we'll kind of talk about this, because I find there to be a lot of similarities in another case that is going to come up here. 
So the only reason investigators stopped looking at Davidio was because his sister told them that he had been with her when the murders took place. And this is something that has since been proven false. So whether or not he committed the murder, it is clear that the young boy had violent and criminal tendencies. It started with him getting into fights in the schoolyard and then escalated into heavy drug use and then grand theft auto. He was also known to be extremely physically abusive with the women he dated. Eventually, his mother sent him to live with his birth father in Pasadena, California. There, he was arrested for robbing a gas station and was sent to a juvenile detention center. Davidio's time in the detention center is significant because this is where he got his nickname that everyone called him by, Froggy. It's also where his sexual perversions developed. He was bunked with another boy who shared the same sadistic fantasies as he did. However, at this point, Davidio didn't know that other people felt this way and he was confused by these feelings, but his bunkmate is going to normalize it and give him a way to do it um, because they talk about how they could get away with committing these sexual crimes. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, you got to think like that's probably the worst thing that ever happened to him in the timeline, right? Because now, like you said, they're normal. this person is normalizing that type of behavior and it's going to continue and get worse. That's crazy to me. Yeah, and it's starting already at such an early yeah. age. Um, his bunkmate, Michael Ide, also is going to go on to become a serial rapist and murderer. Wow. What are the odds that they both get together like that? Yeah, that right? is a, a bad combo. But it's also what are the odds that he's going to begin dating Michelle Michaud? Yeah. Yeah, I guess people that are like-minded gravitate towards one another yeah. sometimes, you know? Once he was released from the detention center, it was clear that Davidio had not had any rehabilitation. His crimes continued as they had before, and he begun, well, they actually escalated, because now at this point, he's abducting and raping women. The rape charges are hard to get him on because, obviously, DNA testing wasn't something that existed during that time. And of the dozen rapes he was accused of, two of them are going to stick. Davidio was added to the sex offender registry after these two rape charges went through. Now, as you can imagine, later on in life, he's not going to be really good about updating his addresses with the local police department because he is on the sex offender registry. And every time you move, you do have to notify your local police department. He had also been sent to a psychiatric hospital twice, first for the rape conviction to psychologically evaluate him in order to qualify him for the registry, and then again for his arrest after he picked up a prostitute who was actually an undercover police officer. And guess what? What? This is all before he graduated high school. What? Yeah. All right, seriously, put your mind, like try to just put your whole entire life in, like, in this scenario. Could you imagine being in high school and doing this crap? Uh, no, I, no, I can't even imagine doing it now. Like, well, well, yeah, but I'm just saying, like, even as a child. It just shows how early these proclivities were present in his life. So think about escalation. Like, when we talk about um, serial rapists or murderers, it's so clear the escalation that they have. And most of them don't get into their crimes until they become older and they kind of like develop their, I guess you can call them like fantasies, desires. I mean, 
this kid is starting at 15 years old. Right, but he's also developing his craft, too. It's like saying, like, you know, like, almost like at this point, he's like a an apprentice, and now he's, like, learning. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's definitely, like, mastering how to do things. And I think that does explain a lot, because when I was first reading it, I was like, he was convicted of two rapes, accused of a dozen before he graduates high school. A dozen. But only two stuck because, I mean, DNA was non-existent. And because a lot of the girls, um, they were actually terrified of him and afraid that he was going to kill them. So they didn't want to go forward with their story. And they actually um, did not want to testify. So then, you know, that was really the only evidence they had against him. Right. But I was confused because I'm like, why didn't this guy go to prison? And the reason for that is because he was a juvenile. So that's why he was sent to the psychiatric hospital and he had to be evaluated several times. I mean, think about how bad the crime had to have been, how young the victim would have had to been to have a 15 year old added to the sex offender registry. Think about that. I mean, I've never even heard about like that ever happening that I I know of, you know, not that I'm looking always at a registry, but like looking at what's around. But I mean, you have to think. I yeah, mean, that I've that's so uncommon. It totally is, and I think it explains a little bit as to why, um, you know, his crimes are going to continue because look at he hasn't really had to suffer any consequences for what he's done. And if one thing has been shown to him, it's you're going to do this a dozen times, maybe even more, because there's probably some victims that didn't come forward. And you're only going to get caught for two, and you didn't serve any time. Yeah. I, hey, you know what, though? I mean, at least, like, at this point, he's been evaluated. But then, at the same time, if he's been evaluated, then they know what he's capable of. So, it's kind of, yeah. like, weird how they didn't follow up with that. Because I could see if they if he was never sent anywhere or, or whatever, I could see it continuing. But right. the fact that he was analyzed and everything, you would think that there would have been some change. Not with him, but with how they you know, look after him. You know what I mean? I agree. And I think that he also, because he's on this registry and he is at the age he is, if they are trying to rehabilitate him, he should be having to see a psychiatrist on a regular basis. But I agree. That's not something that was done here. Yeah. Davidio never finished high school as he dropped out after his girlfriend got pregnant. The couple married, but as you can guess, the marriage was short lived. Um, They did end up having two children together. And his ex-wife is going to say that um, the, the marriage totally didn't work out because first, his sexual proclivities were um, a little disturbing to her. Also, he was drinking very heavily and he does have a gambling habit. Shortly after his divorce, he joined a motorcycle gang in Sacramento called the Devil's Horsemen. And it was at that time that he met Michelle Michaud, who he affectionately called Mickey. Well... Michaud's life was in shambles by the time she met Divigio. She had grown up in an abusive household in which she had been assaulted by her father. She ran away from home when she was 16 years old and moved in with a drug dealer that she had been dating at the time. She learned quickly that her boyfriend's interest had not been in her, rather using her for money. He told her that she had to make money for them and for the drugs that she was using. So she had to become a prostitute, and he was going to be her pimp. 
And that was how Michaud got into prostitution. As the years went on, Michaud experimented with many different types of drugs, but landed on meth as her final addiction. She also had a daughter who she did not hide her lifestyle from in any way. Um, you're going to see as we get a little bit further on into the case that both Davigio and Michaud, their daughters are also um, both meth users. And Davigio is going to particularly um, fuel his daughter's addiction. That's really sad. It's very sad. They're doing nothing to... Now, if it is true and these two individuals had bad childhoods or upbringings, they're not doing anything to end the cycle with their own children. Right, exactly. I mean, to feed their habits, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, those are your kids, so... Also, they're extremely young. Um, Davigio's daughter is going to be 16, um, the one that he's uh, giving drugs to, and Mashad's daughter is is 12. Oh, my God. That's nuts. Mashad and Davigio met during a party thrown by the Devil's Horsemen. She was instantly impressed by the status that Davigio had in the gang, and it made her feel like when she was with him that maybe for the first time she would be protected. But the relationship between the two was not so much a match made in Sons of Anarchy Heaven. Things fell apart as quickly as they came together. Davigio moved into Michaud's house, um, but he did so more for the sake of money than for love. Um, he didn't want to deal with the expenses of living on his own, and Michaud was clearly desperate for him to stay with her. Um, the two had a very expensive meth addiction, and at this point, they were they didn't inject meth, they snorted meth. Just, you know, so you can get the image in your head, you know. Yeah, I mean, hey, listen, someone's got to do it, right? No, no, nobody should do it. No, no, <laughs> no, I meant, <laughs> I meant the, the, the image, like you're oh, saying, oh, oh, oh you yes, got to paint the image. It. Well, maybe it was just a bad It was bad. bad. It's okay. <laughs> so it's clear that Mashad believed that she was going to find stability and safety in her relationship with Davigio. She wanted him to contribute to the bills and become a father figure to her daughter. I don't know how much this is true, but this is the statement that she makes. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want him to be the role model anyway. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she's not really a top role model either, so... However, it was pretty clear right away that this was not something that was going to happen. Davigio became bored with his new girlfriend quite quickly. She tried desperately to keep his attention and impress him, despite the fact that he had been fired from his job at a bar for most likely being the one that was stealing from them and for getting into a fight with the customers. He also would bring home other women and sleep with them in their bedroom while Mashad was home. She said that she allowed him to do this because she just wanted to keep him happy and keep him with her. However, that was not the outcome that she got. Instead, Davigio saw that Mashad would be someone who would do anything for him. Now, because he had a very abusive mind frame, um, most likely established within his childhood, especially because of his mother and her domineering personality, he's going to go kind of the opposite. And he's going to believe that women should just do everything to serve men. So he's going to see Mashad as somebody that's going to do this for him. So he's going to take advantage of that. I mean, that's really sad too. Um, but you know, it, that's so dangerous because now he has something on her. 
Like, there's no way she can't she can say no because she'll do anything for him. It's exactly. So, it's like it's such a cycle, right? It's unbelievable. It's scary when two people like this find each other. Yeah. Davidio began to push the limits with Michaud, and he became physically abusive towards her. He would lock her in their bedroom for days, not allowing her to leave, not even to take care of her daughter. He also forced her to have violent and demeaning sex with him on a regular basis, even while her daughter was present. Now, this leads us to the beginning of our escalation of the crimes. The couple was now deep in their addiction, and what they were spending on drugs was far outweighing the money that they were bringing in, especially because Davidio lost his job. In order to alleviate some of their costs, the couple allowed their house to be the pickup place for their drug dealer. So they handled the handoffs and the cash collections, and in turn, they got their meth at a discounted rate. However, their good deal was going to come to a screeching halt in early August of 1997. The police found out that their house was being used as a stash house, and the couple was brought in for questioning. They turned on their dealer and were able to avoid jail time. But during the investigation, it was found out that Davidio was a sex offender. And because Michaud's daughter was only 12 years old, he was forced to leave the premises. Within the same week, Michaud got news that all of her skipped rent payments had not gone unnoticed. She was being evicted from her house. I mean, yeah, you got to pay your bills, right? <laughs> Yeah, you do have to do that. You have to pay your bills. Um, and also, I think it's nuts how... I wonder if she knew that he was a sex offender, because obviously he was hiding it. I mean, I don't know if she knew that he was on the sex offender list, but the things that he was asking her to do and the way that he was asking her to do these things to him, with him, in front of her daughter would be a big indicator that this is not... The kind of guy you want to hang around your house when you have a 12-year-old daughter. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you I mean, essentially you're putting her in danger like every single time he's present. Totally. Yeah. And the drug use and the fact that this is now a stash home. Yes. So look at the people that are coming in and out of your house. I mean, I, I, I'm going to make the assumption. I know assumptions aren't bad, but I'm going to say that people that are addicted to meth and coming to your house to buy it might not be of, um, not have upstanding characters. Well, yeah, and also, like, you're putting your kid in harm's way. I mean, like we, like we just said, but also you have to think they could have guns. They can come and try to steal it. Totally. There's what if so someone tries to yeah. rob your house? It's terrifying. So many things that could happen. So, well, I think that at this time they felt like they had that protection from the motorcycle gang. So I think they felt that protection um, and safety in becoming a stash house. But still, it's dangerous. Okay, we're going to take a break to hear from our show's sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? In my experience, my conversations with a therapist have helped me get past interferences that I didn't even know were present in my life. And once I could confront them and let them go, my life changed for the better. Well, now there's a way for you to do the same on your own time. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. 
There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available to you. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you have to with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Here is an example of a recent review that was posted on September 12th. The ability to talk to someone outside of my own home has been a great help and experience. My therapist seems to understand that I have a unique lifestyle and many challenges that go along with that. She also seems to know that I need to hear confidence and I can continue when things get hard and still let me vent when I need to. I would strongly recommend this app to anyone needing the ability to see counseling or help with their struggles. Visit BetterHelp.com TCC. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And BetterHelp has a special offer for true crime couple listeners. You get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com TCC. That's 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com TCC. Okay, let's get back to the episode. By the end of August, the couple had moved out of the tri-level home and, like we said before, began living in Mashad's minivan. They were living off of the Social Security checks that Mashad was getting. They were about $300 a week, which did not go a long way when you didn't have a home and you're addicted to meth. During this time, Davigio was also kicked out of the Devil's Horseman. Now, this happened for two reasons. First, he was involved in a burglary. The gang was not upset at him for committing this crime, but they were upset because he kept it a secret from them. Because obviously when they commit crimes like that, the gang is supposed to get a cut of it. He was keeping it secret and he was keeping all the money for himself. So they were upset about that. But I can imagine they were more upset about that fact because he was a really bad gambler and he had had amassed a pretty large debt that he wasn't paying back to them. So the fact that he was getting money and not giving it to them probably made them a little bit more angry than they would have been. Right, you can't take someone's money and then just continue to spend it or and then not pay it back. And then when you make money, don't give it back to them. Exactly. You can't do that. <laughs> they no longer wanted him to be associated with their name and they wanted their money. This is another reason why they probably began living in the van and moving around from place to place because they were trying to evade the motorcycle gang and their collection methods. In the months before Davigio was kicked out of his girlfriend's house for being on the registry was when he began reading about serial killers. He had become obsessed with them and even owned a collection of serial killer trading cards. 
He was obviously only interested in sexually deviant killers, Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy. But then he found something that really piqued his interest. The Glagos. Now, this couple's killings were known as the Love Slave Killings. Gerald and Charlene Gallego. They kidnapped and sexually abused and then murdered young girls in California from 1978 until 1980. In the two short years that they were active, they murdered 10 victims. Davigio was intrigued by this. He already knew that Michaud was willing to do anything he said. She did not have a problem with him having sex with other women because, and as disgusting as this sounds, Davigio, that's how he saw rape, just having sex, even when it was with underage girls. It had been totally normalized to him at this point. He was going to convince Michaud to be his partner, just as Charlene had been to Gerald. Now, this unfortunately was the perfect storm. Because she had become a prostitute at such an early age, Michaud was programmed to believe that she was an object to be used for sex, which is why she allowed Davigio to do what he did to her, and it's most likely to be just one of the many reasons why she agrees to go along with this horrific plan. However, I do believe that Michaud has to have the same deviant sexual tendencies and fantasies, or else like, I'm going to go into detail about these crimes, and it's going to be hard for me to say out loud, and it's going to be hard for you guys to hear, but the reason that I want to do it, like we always say, is to honor the victims and not just gloss over the horrible things that happened to them, but also to show you the shared responsibility of these two people, because what happens when you have these couples that do these things is they instantly turn on each other. Because there is no loyalty. They're doing this for their own selfish desires and needs, right? The only reason they're doing it with each other is because it's more convenient and it's easier and they can get more victims that way. But essentially, they are selfish in what yeah, they're doing. 100%. But they always claim, oh, it wasn't me. I was a victim. He was domineering. Or, oh, it was all her idea. And I just want to explain to you what happened during these attacks against these six victims because they're both equally culpable right so that's why i'm gonna go into detail and it's it's gonna be i hope you're not eating guys and consider yourself warned i will admit i have seen some of it well i just told you there's no there is no victory no no no. (laughs) i'm sorry i take that back let me let me reiterate i what I'm trying to get at is I've seen what you've written yeah. in the script a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I did warn Johnny about um, yeah. what this is going to be about. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad. So now we're at the point where this couple has nothing except clothes in a garbage bag and a minivan. Desperate to keep Davigio with her, Michaud really is going to agree to do whatever he's asking of her. And now, because they are on the move, Davigio believed that this would be the perfect time to begin the crimes that he had always fantasized about. So, the couple began to plan. The first sexual assault in their string of crimes took place in September of 1997. Davigio and Mashad had been staying with friends of theirs for a few days in early September. 
The couple went away for a trip on September 11th, and when they returned, they had found that the screen on their bathroom window was broken in and their house had been lived in. Michaud later confessed to her friend that in fact it was her and Davidio that had broken in and lived in their house for a few days. The couple would also later find out that their home had been the site of the first sexual attack. The first victim of the couple is known as Christina Doe in court documents, and that is how we are going to refer to her and all other victims. All who wish to stay anonymous will continue to be kept anonymous through this retelling of their attacks and subsequent trials. Christina Doe was a close friend of Michelle Michaud's daughter. Christine had been friends with Michaud's daughter, who is referred to as Rachel Doe. Christina was 13 years old and Rachel was 12. The two had been friends for nine years at that point. Michaud was close with Christina and would sometimes spend time with her even when her daughter was at her father's house. At that point, Christina had met Davigio nine months prior. One night in September, when Michaud knew the girl was going to be home alone, she knocked on her door and asked her if she wanted to run errands with her. The girl agreed. Michaud brought the girl to the couple's home while they were on vacation. It is confirmed that she was brought to this house because the girl was able to describe the house and its layout to investigators. When they entered the home, they found Davidio watching television. The girl sat down to watch TV while Michaud said she was going to get ready and she would be right back. While the girl watched TV with Davidio, he made comments to her about having baseball trading cards with serial killers on them. Feeling uncomfortable, the girl went to join Michaud in the kitchen to ask her when they were going to leave. But Davidio followed her in. While in the kitchen, the two adults used meth. They urged Christina to use the drug as well, but she refused to do so. Eventually, they forced her to snort the drug. Michaud then immediately took the girl into the bathroom. The girl who was 13 years old, the one she had known since she was four, that she wanted to party with her. Christina became upset and said no, that she didn't want to. That was when Michaud took a handgun out of her waistband and put it down on the kitchen sink. She said, don't worry, this is for your protection. But still, she forced the girl to undress. Again, the girl refused until Michaud ripped off the girl's clothing and took off her bra and licked her chest. She then guided the girl to the living room and told Davidio that she was his present. This was when the couple took the girl into their friend's bedroom. So this is the part that's going to be extremely disturbing. And I honestly can't believe that the things that I'm about to tell you were written on the Supreme Court documents that um, we received. But um, here we go. Michaud took off Davidio's pants and then masturbated while her boyfriend orally and digitally copulated Christina Doe. The couple then tried to force the girl to perform oral sex on Davidio. She refused to do so. Christina Doe was then raped for 15 minutes. She knew it was 15 minutes because of a clock in the room. While he was raping the young girl, Michaud anally stimulated him. Now, like I said before, 
I want it to tell you all that there's no, they're both equally guilty here. There was no one person that that attack can be blamed on. It is the both of them. 100%. I mean, it doesn't seem like either of them have a conscience, right? No. This is or, a girl. Or a moral compass. They don't care. Right. And this is a girl that Michelle has known since she was four years old. Right. So after the attack was over, Michaud took Christina to the bathroom and told her that if you ever tell anyone about this, I will kill you. And the girl believed her. She was terrified. When she was brought home, Christina Doe did not tell anyone. The truth will come out later, and we'll get there. The next attack came a few weeks later. In the early morning hours of September 29, 1997, the Placer County Sheriff's Office got a call about a woman wandering aimlessly, looking disheveled, on Interstate 80. They went to pick up the woman, who has been identified as Alito Doe, a 20-year-old Hispanic woman whose native language was not English. She told police that she had been kidnapped, raped, and driven to an abandoned road, and she was trying to find her way home. Police then asked her where she lived, and she told them, Reno, Nevada. They were shocked. She was 90 miles away from Reno. The woman was taken to a hospital where a rape kit was performed, and semen samples were taken from her neck and face. The police questioned her about the attack. She said that she had been walking home on Washington Street in Reno. She just finished her night class. A dark-colored minivan pulled up alongside her. There was a woman driving, and it seemed like she was alone, so this put the girl at ease. The woman asked for directions to the freeway. It was hard for her to speak English, but she was trying her best to give the woman directions. When a man threw open the sliding door of the minivan and grabbed her. Before she knew it, she was locked in the van, and the woman was driving off. The one thing that they utilized about this minivan was that there was um, basically three rows of seating. So they would take um, the second row of seating out and then there were child locks on the sliding door. So once the women were taken inside the van, there was no way of them getting out. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of crazy. I mean, but there was a lot of space in the minivan. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if that was planned, but I mean, because maybe that was just her vehicle. But I mean, still, it's a pretty good vehicle to do what they were doing i guess yeah the man that had a hold of her told her to stay quiet and not say anything she listened as he groped her body she looked at the person driving the van it was a woman with shoulder length brown hair a thin face and tan skin alito thought that maybe this woman had been kidnapped as well and maybe together they would be able to get out the man then instructed her to get undressed. She was so scared and she didn't want to anger him, so she took off her shirt. He reached over and took off her bra and then began sexually assaulting her. At one point, Alito was able to reach out and touch the driver's hair. She was trying to get the woman's attention. She was begging for help, but the driver ignored her. That, she said, was when she realized that the driver was not a victim but was with the man that was attacking her. The man then asked her if she was interested in women and wanted the woman behind the wheel to join, but she did not respond. 
At one point during the attack, the driver put a cassette tape in the player and began singing along. While attacking her, the man began to sing along as well. It was hard for her to understand, as she didn't speak English well. The man explained to her what the song was about, killing a man in Reno just to watch him die. Obviously, they were listening to Folsom County Blues by Johnny Cash. But he told her not to worry about that. I'm not going to kill you. I don't even have my gun on me, he said. And then he told her that they could not return her to Reno because he was worried about going to prison. So he would have to release her far away. After the attack was over, Alito tried to ask the couple questions, but they didn't answer. Finally, the man told her to stop talking, that she was asking too many questions. So she just listened to them talk. She did notice that the man kept calling the woman Mickey. Finally, the woman pulled off of the freeway and told Alito to get out of the van. He told her to turn around and count to 20 and then start walking. She listened and counted to 20. After she heard them drive away, she walked for miles and finally made it to a highway. She had no clue where she was. The detectives that were questioning her said the woman was terrified, but she was relieved that at least she had escaped and this was over. Investigators on the Alito Doe's case soon found out that the girl was left on Clipper Gap Road. One of the men made a comment that this was the dumping site for one of the victims of the Galigo couple back in 1979. He had been a rookie when the murders had taken place, and it sounded like this couple, whoever they were, were copycats. Yeah, well, he's he's really had a lot of interest in that other couple. So I, right. I, you know, I'm maybe he's just taking things out of their playbook 100%, you know? Right. And it is really, it's amazing that the um, one police officer was able to remember that and realize like, okay, we might have serial rapists on our hands here. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like when people copycat, usually it's just, I, I would imagine, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I mean, if you're copycatting, I mean, it's one thing to copycat the crimes. And maybe like how they do things, but it's it's a totally other thing when you're doing all that plus where they were doing it. Right. In the same site. Yeah. The only difference was that they let Alito go and um, the Galigos did not. Um, they killed their victims. Right. So we're not going to see a murder until a little bit later on with um, this couple. The investigation now had to take a completely different route. The FBI got involved first because the victim was transported from one state to another, so now it was their jurisdiction. However, they also took an interest in the case because they believed that this may be a case of copycat killers out there. And if they were trying to mimic the love slave killers, they wanted to get them off the streets as quickly as possible, especially before they escalated to murder. Completely unaware of the new investigation against them, Davigio and Mashad continued their violent sexual spree, and they had their next victim in mind. And after this, you'll you'll know nobody is safe from this couple. They have no boundaries whatsoever. The next incident occurred a few weeks after the Alito Doe incident. Mashad's daughter had been staying with her boyfriend's family while her mother and boyfriend lived out of their van. 
In mid-October, I mean, I'm just going to stop that there. You have a 12-year-old daughter. I know that you've gotten evicted from your house and you're addicted to meth and you're living out of a van. But now you have your 12-year-old daughter living with her boyfriend's family. Well, I mean, does that shock you, though? No, it doesn't. It's just like a detail. I just, you know, I mean, you kinda... these things are all so hard to get past. Well, of course. I mean, listen, you have to understand, right? Like you said, they have no boundaries, not just with what they do with their extracurriculars, but also with how they conduct family life. I mean, you yeah. can't you can't expect anything, you know, anything less. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> so in mid-October, Mashad showed up at the family's doorstep and told her daughter, who's referred to as Rachel Doe, that she wanted to spend some time with her before her and Davidio headed up to Oregon to find a place to live. After spending hours together and putting her daughter at ease, Michaud asked her if she wanted to join them on their road trip to Oregon. Rachel agreed to go. Rachel will later state that while her mother was driving, she fell asleep on the bench in the minivan's third row. When she woke up, Davidio was massaging her inner thigh. She said he kept moving his hand up to her waistband, like he was trying to get inside her pants. She pushed his hands away and then moved up to the passenger seat next to her mother. While she was sitting there, he sat behind her and began rubbing her shoulders. While he was doing this, she kept shrugging his hands off. When the trio stopped at their first rest stop, Rachel confided in her mother in the bathroom what Davidio had done. And she said that it was making her extremely uncomfortable. According to Rachel, her mother told her that she would have a talk with her boyfriend and tell him to stop. Rachel saw her mother go over and talk with him, but she was unable to hear what they were saying. When they were ready to get back into the van, Rachel chose to sit up front with her mother again. While they were driving, she said her mother started to have a very bizarre conversation with her. She started by telling her daughter that she basically had had sex with everyone and that she had been her secret lust, her daughter. Wait, wait, wait. So the mother's saying, I've had sex with everyone. Like, I basically have had sex with everyone you know, but I want to have sex with you. What? Oh, my God. Okay. I know. This is going to get bad now. Okay. So Rachel went on to say that her mother was telling her that she was her fantasy and that when she would allow Rachel to get... So Rachel would basically smoke a lot of marijuana and pass out when she was living with her mother. Okay. And Michaud was telling Rachel in the van that when that would happen, she would sexually abuse her. Okay. That's really that's really ridiculous. At this point, I'm sorry. How old was she? Was she 12? 12. 12 years old. 12 years old. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, well, I'm not, I'm just saying, like, I mean, at any age, I mean, this is ridiculous, but yeah. she's 12. Your mother is literally saying to your face that I have abused you sexually, sexually abused you. Correct. After providing drugs. Yeah. And now I want to have sex with you. Correct. There's yeah. other horrifically disgusting details that I'll spare you. Okay. Oh my God. But it's, yeah. She explained in detail what she did to her daughter. Whether or not this is true, um, we don't know, but well, it's yeah, what she's claiming. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them. No. <laughs> 
Michaud then told her daughter she was going to pull over to the side of the road so they could have a more serious conversation. Rachel tried to grab her sneakers so she could make a run for it, but Michaud had locked the doors and the van had child locks. Zavigio then reached over and reclined her seat backwards. Her mother then told her, you can go along with this or we're going to take it from you. When Michelle struggled, Davigio held her down. Then her own mother sexually assaulted her in the front seat of the van on the side of the highway. Davigio eventually pulled the girl into the back of the van, pulled her pants down all the way, and then orally copulated her while her mother was in the van watching, doing the same thing she did in the situation with Christina Doe. After the attack, Rachel climbed into the back seat further, like into the third row, and she cried herself to sleep. When she woke up, it was still nighttime, but they were in front of a motel. As soon as she went into the motel room, she went to bed. There were two beds in the room. When Rachel woke up, her mother was lying next to her, naked, and asked her daughter if she could have sex with her. Rachel told her mother no. This is when Davigio and Michaud duct taped her mouth closed and her hands behind her back. Davigio began to sexually assault Rachel, and while he did so, her mother wiped her tears away. Okay. So, I mean, this is pretty brutal. I'm not going to lie. I mean, this, this is, is probably one of the worst things. This is probably one of the covered. worst things. Yeah. I, I mean, I know I always just say the that. Ideas, but it's just the ideas. I know. It's crazy. You know what it is? It's because your mother and, let, let's just say, your parents are supposed to be there to protect you. Um, and even people who have the worst parents in the world, uh, to, in, in their eyes, it doesn't even come close to this. Yeah. I mean, your parents are there to protect you. They're supposed to be there to, you know, make sure that you're okay. To hear that, that's that's unbelievable. It's a whole new level of disturbing. Yeah. Eventually, the attack stopped. The couple then had sex on the bed next to her. About 30 minutes later, they asked Rachel if she was going to scream. And she shook her head no. So finally, they removed the duct tape from her mouth. Davigio was in the bathroom shaving his beard and his head because he was still trying to avoid the motorcycle gang. So once he was done, they left the motel and they drove directly to Christina Doe's house, the first victim. They told Rachel to go to the girl's door and ask her if she wanted to go with them to Santa Cruz. Christina stated later that when she saw how horrible Rachel looked when she came to her door, she had known exactly what had happened to her. It was for that reason that she decided to go. She later said, I felt if they did anything to her that they did to me, I don't think I would want to be alone either. All I want to say is, I mean, that's because they were friends, right? Yeah, yeah. since they were four. Since they were four. Okay, so, I mean, that's really kind and yeah compassionate brave. and brave but i mean i have to tell you if that was me i would have probably closed the door and i know it sounds messed up but i mean if you've been through that why would you want to subject yourself to that again i'm not and i'm not blaming her i'm saying me personally right. i don't know if i would have left well i think you again. have to you have <laughs> to go back to when you were 13 years old and your sense of loyalty to your friends i agree is something yeah. that's undying yeah. When you're that I don't, age. I don't want my message to get no, misconstrued. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, I just, I don't know if you're I would have been able to do that. You're saying it took a brave person to do that. Absolutely. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to. So both girls headed to the minivan idling in the street. 
Luckily, no assaults happened to the girls during this trip. Okay. So, everyone take a deep breath. Davidio wanted to use that time to get his message across to the two girls. On the way back from Santa Cruz, he stopped off in a wooded area where he proceeded to shoot a gun out of an open window. Mashad then told them that if they told anyone about what happened, that they would track them down and kill them. And again, both girls believed them. Now, I want to stop here first so we can obviously collect ourselves. And um, just so I can add a little perspective about the state of mind of both the Vigio and Mashad. At this point, the couple is completely living out of their van and sometimes sparing enough money to get a motel room here and there. They are sick and depraved, and it is obvious that they both have a proclivity towards the sexually perverse. But what makes everything worse is the fact that they're snorting meth. Methamphetamines are a psychostimulant that causes its user to be in a euphoric state. It increases arousal, but also impulsivity and a loss of reality for the, for the user. Davidio and Mashad did not need any of these feelings as they are sexual sadists and deviants. So arousal is not a good thing when it comes to these two because it equals violence. They are already impulsive and have lost touch with reality because they believe what they're doing is okay. So the fact that this is doing it more is allowing these crimes to take place in such quick succession, but also in its level of like insanity and ferocity. Like I yeah. feel like it's like very aggressive. I, you know what too? Like I get what you're saying because we don't want anybody to think that it's because of the methamphetamines that they're committing these crimes. I mean, obviously, no. I mean, it is a, it's a catalyst maybe to make things go over the edge. It's aiding. It's aiding yeah. their sickness. Yeah. Right. Because, and you know, like one of the other things that a psychostimulant would do is it's an erosion of a value system that a person has. This couple already has a zero value system. So an erosion of that means the depths of depravity. Yeah, right. For them. Yeah, it's true. Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, how much lower can you get sexually assaulting your 12-year-old daughter like that? And letting someone else do it, too. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> the next incident that takes place is, again, two weeks after the attack of Rachel Doe. I believe these attacks are taking place in two weeks increments because this correlates to when they can get their hands on their drugs. Every two weeks, Mashad gets her social security check, which she picks up in Pleasanton, California. And as she doesn't have an address, she has to go pick it up. Then they cash the check. Then they buy their drugs. And then that's when an attack takes place. I mean, that's, not, that's unbelievable. Could you imagine? Like, oh, here's your check. Just go buy drugs with it. Yep. Well, some people, unfortunately, that's the, uh, the cycle. I feel bad for them, though. Not these people, but... Well, yeah, yeah. In general. The like people it, stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the first week of November 1997, Mashad was at the house of a friend. The house was full of people who were drinking and doing meth. There, Mashad met a woman who went by the name of Amy Doe in the court documents. Amy admitted that around that time in early November, she had a pretty heavy addiction to meth. She used about every other day. 
While at this house, Michaud got to talking with Amy about her relationship with Davigio. She admitted that she wasn't happy, but she was scared to be alone. Amy was sympathetic to the woman, and Michaud eventually asked her if she wanted to take a drive and talk more about her relationship with her. Amy agreed to do so. As they were driving, Michaud said that she actually had to go to her hotel room because she was waiting for a call from her drug connection. So Amy agreed to go to the motel and talk there and possibly do more drugs. The two women sat on the bed of the hotel for about 15 to 20 minutes. Amy said that Michaud was crying to her about how Davigio treated her. At one point, the woman, sobbing, even placed her head in Amy's lap. In response, Amy tried to comfort the woman by getting her to calm down. But while she was doing this, she was struck on the back of her head by the butt of a gun. This dazed her, but also made her panic. So she started screaming and fighting and attempting to get out of the hotel room. Davigio handcuffed one of her wrists to a secure object in the room and then punched her in the mouth which caused significant bleeding. They screamed at her to shut up and that she was going to die if she didn't. Once she calmed down, Davigio went to uncuff her and then recuff both of her hands behind her back. At that point, the man stood behind her where she could not see him. Amy felt the gun pressed to her head and then she heard a click. Damn, Davigio said. It jammed. Now, this is something that I don't think... I think this is just him messing with her. They haven't murdered anyone yet. And he seems to... He's a sadist. He enjoys hurting someone. That's how he... That's where he gets his pleasure from. Right. It also incites panic. Well, I'm saying, like, he's not going to kill someone and then rape them because he enjoys inflicting pain. Right. He's obviously just messing with her, like you said. I mean... Correct. The woman was then blindfolded. She was struggling and trying to fight them off any way she could. When she began to scream, Davigio attempted to put duct tape over her mouth to stop her. However, there was so much blood coming from her mouth that he was having trouble making it stick. They had to practically wrap the duct tape around her entire head. Mashad cut off the woman's shirt and bra and then pulled her pants and her underwear off. They both took turns sexually assaulting Amy. After about an hour of suffering, the couple stopped. This attack lasted an entire hour. They took the handcuffs off, and as they ripped the duct tape from her face, they told her that if she told anyone what happened, they would kill her. However, they did not let her go immediately. Amy had to stay in the hotel room with Davigio as Michaud took the bloody sheets to a laundromat. Then she was forced to shower. She estimated that in total she had been with the couple from anywhere between six and seven hours. That's a really long time. Yeah, and then you're probably scared that they're going to hurt you again. Yeah. While Michaud was gone, Davigio tried to rid himself of the responsibility of the crime. He told Amy that the abduction and rape had all been Michaud's idea and not his. Before Amy was taken back to the original house she met Michaud in, she was briefed by the couple again. She was told that their friend thought that she just got drunk and fell down at a bar because this is how Michaud met this woman. They were friends with the same person and Amy Doe was staying at that person's house. 
So Mashad is saying, I already told her that we went to a bar together and you fell. And that's why you were bleeding. So it's just like a, like a cover story. Right. So basically keep up with this cover story or yeah. we're going to kill you. Right. And actually four days later, Mashad returns to that same house because obviously this is, I think, where they were getting drugs from. And she realized that Amy had never told okay. about the attack. So she said... She actually thanked her for that, which is disgusting. You're like, I mean, I mean, what do you expect her yeah. to do? Like, obviously, she's so afraid that she can't say anything. Right. So, and this has kind of been the trend, other than that one woman, I believe, uh, on, on by in Reno, where they're not really, you know, say, saying anything. Right. I mean, also, when you think about it, too, I mean, she's living at a drug house. She's doing a lot of drugs. This couple was doing a lot of drugs. You're not really going to be inclined to go to the police and report this. Right, exactly. exactly. So they were taking advantage of that. It's almost like the perfect victim because they're not going to say anything. Right. Because they don't know, you know, it's it's like the seedy underbelly of drugs and crime. But what, you're not going to put yourself in harm's way further. Exactly. So one day after the attack on Amy Doe, DiVigio and Michaud decided to visit a young girl that they knew through DiVigio's daughters, April and Jamie. That's his daughter's names. The girl in court documents has been named Sharona Doe. Sharona was best friends with April and Jamie, and on many occasions she did meth in their house. You know, the house that was Michaud's house in Sacramento. Sharona was working at a laser tag place in Dublin, California. She was outside taking a cigarette break when DiVigio and Michaud pulled up in their minivan. They offered her meth, and she accepted. She said that she did so because she trusted them, and it had been a while since she used drugs, so she wanted to. Sharona told them that they could all go into the bathroom of the laser tag facility that she worked in, but the couple refused. They proposed that they just went and got high in the van, and she agreed to this idea. When Sharona got into the van, she realized that the middle rows of seats had been taken out. She sat on the floor while DiVigio was in the driver's seat and Michaud was chopping up the drugs on a hard surface set up on the third row of seating. Michaud then pretended to drop the drugs on the floor of the van. She asked Sharona to help her pick up the drugs. But when the girl went to go clean up the mess, she noticed that there had never been any drugs. When she went to turn towards Michaud, the woman pushed her down to the floor of the van. Sharona was able to push Michaud off of her, but she was unable to leave the van because of the child's safety locks. As she was trying to pull the door open, DiVigio got up from the driver's seat and hit Sharona. She never lost consciousness, but she was dazed from the hit. When she regained an understanding of her situation, she realized that she was handcuffed. Michaud was now behind the wheel and DiVigio was in the back of the van with her. Michaud pulled over into a bowling alley parking lot across the street, and the couple got into a fight because DiVigio said that was a horrible spot to go to. He then instructed her to begin driving on the freeway. Michaud complied. DiVigio then told Sharona to give him oral sex, and the terrified girl complied while crying the entire time. DiVigio told Michaud to pull over off the highway, and she did. 
Sharona later recalled that they were parked outside. Um, she said just like a division of really big homes. Bashad got into the back seat and took off the girl's pants and then orally raped her for 20 minutes while Davigio watched and masturbated. I'm going to go throw up again. Once the attack was over and while the girl was still naked from the waist down, Davigio took pictures of her. He told her that if she ever told anyone, they would show these pictures to everyone they knew and to all the people that she went to school with. The girl was 15 years old. Terrified, Sharona told the couple that she would never tell on them. In fact, she would make up a false story to tell the police in order to make them feel a little bit more comfortable. They thought this was a good idea, and Mashad even tore the girl's shirt to make her story more believable. The couple dropped her off at a gas station a block away from her job. Once Sharona was sure they were gone, she called a co-worker to come pick her up. Once back at the laser tag facility, um, she told her manager what took place. And the manager, after realizing that one of his employees had been attacked, called the police. When police arrived at the scene, Sharona told them a story about three men attacking her and sexually assaulting her. The police were conflicted. It was clear that the young girl had been physically assaulted. There was a lot of bruising on her body and ligature marks on her wrists. However, her story had a lot of inconsistencies. Um, she had said that three men had attacked her and um, that they took turns sexually assaulting her. I, can you believe that? That no. you would come up with this, this fabrication of this, even though you were abused. Right. Something so now, did happen to you, but now they're going to have to go in a totally different direction because... You're covering for them, the real people who did it. Right. And you're also like you're a victim of a sexual assault. And now because your story has all these inconsistencies, you're being treated as someone who's lying. Right. Which is unfortunate. It's just a, such a sad situation to be in. Yeah, totally. So the only thing that police could do is really go on the information that they were being provided with. And like you said, it was just a dead end because the story was just untrue. After the attack on Sharona Doe, Davigio and Mashad chose to stay in the area. It was about to be Thanksgiving, and Davigio wanted to spend the holiday with his daughters. He was also upset that Mashad had been able to sexually assault her daughter and that he had not been able to do so as well. In the nights leading up to Thanksgiving, Davigio and Mashad rented a room at the Candlewood Inn, which was in the same town where his first wife lived. Um, together, like we said before, the um, couple had two daughters together. And Davidio's ex-wife had remarried, but Davidio did not like her new husband. So instead of going to the house um, where his daughters lived, he invited them to come stay with him at the hotel. And on several occasions, they actually spent the night there at the hotel with their father before Thanksgiving. Okay. April, Davidio's 16-year-old daughter was very deep into her meth addiction at that point. She admitted that she was using drugs every day. Her supplier, when he was around, was her father. April liked staying with her father and his girlfriend while they were at the Candlewick Inn for that very reason. She had a lot of free drugs. 
So this all led up to Thanksgiving Day itself. April and Jamie drove with their father and Michaud back to their house to have dinner. Imagine how uncomfortable that dinner must have been. Jesus. The winners at they, that table. Yeah, or I wonder what they even ate. And those poor daughters. <laughs> I don't know. At one point, Davidio sat with his daughter, April, in her room. While there, he pulled out an automatic handgun and was caressing it while talking to her. Not even, like, acknowledging that it was there, but it was intimidating. The dinner ended early, as Davidio did not want to stay long because of his dislike for his ex-wife's new husband. Jamie stayed at the house because Davidio told her to do so, but he convinced April to come back to the hotel room with him. Her father had told her that there would be drugs there. And Davidio also promised that he would take her to the DMV the following day so she could get her license. April would later say that when they got to the hotel, her father began having a very bizarre conversation with her, just as they had done with Rachel Doe, Michaud's daughter. He started by talking about ways to rob an armored truck, like he knew the perfect way to do it. Then he moved on to something that he called hunting. He said that he had gone hunting and that one day she should go with him as well. Hunting, he said, was when you stalk someone to kill them. You can see the fear in people's eyes and it's an adrenaline rush. And then he told her that she reminded him of himself. She, like him, had no remorse and would be able to not have any feelings. He said, for instance, if my sister ever saw me killing someone, I would have to kill her too. And I couldn't think twice about it. And that's how you have to be when you kill. You can't care about people like that. And he was basically telling his daughter, I could see you being like that. He then went on to tell her that he studied serial killers and focused on their flaws so that he would never be caught. When they were still living in Sacramento, April did recall that her father had given her a book about Henry Lee Lucas, who's a prolific serial rapist and serial killer. So she was thinking like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of telling me the truth here. April asked her father if he had ever killed someone. He told her that if he did, he wouldn't tell her because he would never want her to have to lie for him. April said the conversation was very bizarre. And afterwards, Davigio got into the shower and was in the bathroom for around 20 minutes. While he was in the bathroom, Michaud approached her. She sat next to her and told her, When your father gets out of the shower, he's going to have oral sex with you. I thought it would be better if you knew. April was terrified, and she didn't know what to do. Her father got out of the shower and sat next to her. He told her that he loved her, and then he began to touch her. April told him no, and he said to her, Don't worry, you'll enjoy yourself. Michaud left the room and went into the bathroom. He then undressed her and orally raped her. The attack lasted an entire hour. April cried the entire time. About 45 minutes into the attack, Michaud came out of the bathroom and orally copulated Davidio as he was still sexually assaulting her, his daughter. When the attack was over, she pulled on her clothes and went to sleep. The next morning, they checked out of the hotel and went to drop April off at her house. Before they left, Michaud stopped her and asked her if she wanted to go hunting with them. She told them no. 
and Mashad got visibly upset. You're going to have to come sooner or later, she said. And then the couple left. I, I don't even have words. I know. I know. It's, it's no hard. No words. Later that day, April went to visit her boyfriend. He tried to be intimate with her, but she became upset and started crying. He asked her what was wrong. And this is when she broke down and told him everything. However, they didn't go to authorities because April was still afraid to. However, this is going to be beneficial later on in the investigation that April did confide in someone else. So there was, she told somebody. Right, exactly. So it's going to corroborate the story that she has. After the rape of Davigio's daughter, the intentions of the couple would begin to change. I think that these two people had done the worst thing in the world, violated and humiliated their own children who clearly needed supportive and structured parents. But instead of helping them, they used them for their own demented sexual desires. That is the worst thing that I think a human being can do. It goes against human nature. It's true. So now in order to achieve the same high of these horrendous crimes, they were going to have to up the ante. So they were planning on murdering someone. And their actions after the incident on Thanksgiving are going to prove that. But what the couple didn't know was that their worlds were going to soon come crashing down. Christina and Rachel both told each other, what happened to them and they agreed that they had to tell someone what happened they chose to tell christina's parents and rachel's grandfather now this is the father of michelle Machad. remember she accused her father of abusing her when she was a child it's unclear whether it was just physical abuse or sexual abuse but her chill her daughter will go on to have a really good relationship with her maternal grandfather. So she felt comfortable enough telling him about this attack. I mean, at least she has somebody to tell because, I mean, this is I mean, this is so pretty sad. brutal and it's really sad. Yeah. So they told Christina's father and Rachel's grandfather and they explained everything that happened to them. And they said that they were frightened for their lives. But both men are going to go to police and tell them what happened to these two young girls. The police were beginning their investigation on the couple. So the walls are starting to close in, even though they're not realizing it. Little did police in California know that the FBI in Reno were at that very moment showing Alito Doe photos of men that looked like the man that she claimed attacked her. And obviously correlated with men that were on the sex offenders registry smart very and she was able to choose davidio out of a lineup wow okay the fbi went to the last known address of davidio but he was not there new residents told them that the couple had been evicted they spoke to known associates of the couple who told them that they were now living out of their van Not knowing what they were capable of, the FBI issued an arrest for the abduction and sexual assault of Alito Doe, and they began a manhunt for a green minivan. After three days of driving around, Davigio and Michaud checked into a Motel 6 in Pleasanton. They then drove to a nearby Kmart, where they purchased two curling irons at 
6.51 p.m. The following day, they went to a sex store and bought a VHS video entitled Submissive Young Girls and a Ball Gag. On December 2nd, the couple checked out of the Motel 6 and went hunting. Unfortunately, they crossed paths with 22-year-old Vanessa Sampson. Vanessa lived with her parents and siblings in Pleasanton. She walked to her job at an insurance agency that was located about a mile away from her house each workday. She was to be in the office at 8 a.m., but would generally arrive early. Her mother recalled that on the morning of December 2nd, she had said goodbye to her daughter sometime between 7.20 a.m. and 7.45 a.m. Vanessa never arrived at work that morning, which was very unlike her. Her office contacted her family, who in turn tried to contact Vanessa. They could not reach her. When police arrived to investigate her disappearance later that day, they canvassed the neighborhood to see if anyone noticed anything. They were thinking, like, what could have happened to this woman in the one mile that it takes her to walk to work? I mean, what are the chances of her running into to trouble? You know what I mean? Yeah. But they were in luck. Two men were working on a roof on a house that was on the route that Vanessa would take to work. They told the investigators that they had heard a scream. They looked at each other and then stood up to gain a better vantage point. They saw a forest green van driving away slowly. One of the men noticed that the van had a California license plate that started with the number three. There was a white woman driving, they said. She had shoulder-length brown or black hair. Both men confirmed that this was at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. Well, at least there's an eyewitness to it because, I mean, they're traveling a lot in this minivan. Oh, yeah. No, they totally are. And they're in different places all the time. So it's kind of, they're in different places from Pleasanton, California. That's like as south as they went all the way north to Lake Tahoe. Like yeah, Reno far. and Tahoe. So yeah. like they were traveling a lot around Interstate 80. That's crazy. Yeah, they, they, and you know what? It's good that somebody saw it, right? It's great that they have the license plate or at least the, you know, the right. first number or letter. They have it. I mean, right. that's good. It helps. I mean, this all really helps. But the one bad thing is this. There's three investigations going on against this couple right now, and they don't know about each other. Right. There's not enough communication between the different departments. Correct. Or towns or however you, however they break it up. So Davidio and Mashad were seen in the area. Around 9.45 a.m., Mashad was seen collecting her check at a welfare office and then later at a check cashing facility. The minivan was then seen parked in a recreation area. The recreation area was a self-service pay station in which Davidio would not have to come in contact with anyone while purchasing a ticket to park there. However, someone was parked nearby, and they saw the man walk outside of the van. As soon as Davidio knew he was spotted by someone else, they left five minutes later. They checked into the Tahoe Sundowner Motel next. The clerk at the motel stated that the couple only stayed for a few hours and the room was spotless when they left. They had even taken out the garbage themselves. They then traveled to the Lakeside Inn and Casino. The reason they were in Tahoe and in that hotel was because it was located next to the county courthouse. 
Michaud had a hearing the following morning for cashing bad checks. And that was the hotel that they stayed in. First, because it's across the street from the courthouse, but also there's a casino. And we know Davigio has a little bit of a gambling problem. I mean, that's pretty interesting, right? I mean, like you... You're right next to, like, your courthouse. It's, like, weird, you know? It's like Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> he's, probably like, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone, you know? Right. It's like, what? When the couple was checking into the hotel, the FBI was paying a visit to Mashad's sister. She told them that the couple was most likely going to be in Lake Tahoe because her sister had a court appearance to make. Um, she knew about the court appearance because she had been the one that... Um, had gotten bail for her when she got arrested for it. So she knew the date that the court appearance was going to be because of the bail association. Okay. She said that they were most likely staying in the hotel across from the courthouse, probably because, um, you know, Davidio liked to gamble there. And that was the hotel that they had stayed at before when they had had to make a court appearance at the same courthouse. So the FBI rushed to Lake Tahoe to arrest the couple. When they got to the hotel and casino, they found Davigio gambling at the casino. He was arrested on the spot without incident and taken to the local police station. The agents then dressed up as hotel security and made their way up to the hotel room where Mashad was. They told her that Davigio had passed out on the casino floor and that they had called an ambulance. Reluctantly, Michaud opened the door. She was arrested immediately and the room was searched. Now, remember, the FBI is searching this room, so they don't know about missing Vanessa Sampson. Okay. So they're not necessarily rushing in to find a girl. They're rushing in to find evidence. Evidence of some sort of wrongdoing. uh, Crimes, yeah. Yeah. Inside the room, they found a pay envelope for that recreation area they, they had been at. On the slip, they found it interesting that the couple had filled out that there were three people in the minivan versus the two. So that implies that the time they were at the recreation center that Vanessa had obviously been with them. At that point, the FBI knew nothing about the investigation that the Pleasanton police were conducting on Vanessa Sampson, but they also didn't know that the Sacramento Police Department were building a case against Davidio and Mashad for the sexual assaults of Christina and Rachel Doe. Okay. So everything's starting to come like it's like crumbling Correct. down. Correct. Okay. Also in the hotel room, they found yellow nylon rope, a semi-automatic pistol, and obviously lots of meth. Once the couple was in custody and processed, all the cases against them in the various jurisdictions culminated and the FBI took over the entire case. And unfortunately, the morning after their arrest, a passing driver found a body laying in the snow on the side of the road. The body, because of the weather, had been frozen. There were also clear ligature marks surrounding the neck. Near the body was a piece of black rope that had a human hair on it. The autopsy of Vanessa Sampson revealed that her cause of death was asphyxia, the same cause of death as that 14-year-old girl Right, in 1974. The yeah. The marks on her neck revealed that she had been manually strangled, meaning that someone used their hands to strangle her. But then there were also tighter, smaller ligature marks 
meaning that someone had used rope to strangle her as well. The medical examiner is going to determine that it was the rope strangulation that actually caused her death because it was the final form of the strangulation. It could have been any one of them, though, if you think about it. Maybe he started with his hands and then maybe one of them stepped in with a rope instead, like just to kind of make this go quicker kind of thing. Well, what's what Michaud is going to later say was that Davigio was strangling her to death. And then he stopped and he got a rope and then he instructed Michaud to strangle her with the rope. And then after um, she had died, he said, now you're you did it, too. Okay. so they're both. So they're both culpable. Gotcha. There were no ligature marks on the victim's feet or hands, but the forensic pathologist testified that that doesn't necessarily mean she was not restrained. Um, We know that they had also restrained other victims using duct tape. So if you restrain someone using duct tape, not there's not always going to be ligature marks. Okay, that's good to know in the case. Not 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 for your life. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. No, not my life. But no, no, it's good to know about the case. Yes. It's good to know that. She also had deep bruising that stretched from her lower back to the top of her thighs. The van was also searched. And the VHS tape entitled Submissive Young Girls was found, along with a roll of duct tape, a ball gag with three bite marks on it, a white tissue with blood, and two Revlon curling irons. Now, these curling irons had been modified. The metal clasp that's used to hold your hair in place when you curl it had been removed, and the electrical cord had been taken off of the device. And um, duct tape had been um, placed around the part where they, like, removed the clamp, basically. Um, Later forensic tests are going to be performed, and Vanessa's DNA, um, blood, and fecal matter were found on the curling iron. And um, her DNA was also found on the ball gag. It was determined that both curling irons had been used to rape and sodomize Vanessa. Okay, well, um, I mean, they're they're terrible. uh, Horrific. What's crazy is I think that I think what's going to happen here is after everyone listens to the episode, I think they're going to realize, like, just like I did, that I didn't even know about this. Like, I had no idea that these people even existed. Sometimes the more that we've, I mean, we've been doing this for over... A little over three years now, and I'm finding that the people that the public doesn't know about are the more depraved. Yeah. So, I mean, we're a part of the true crime community, right, guys? And I think that we're, we've heard so many cases, um, but the there's like there's a difference of the true crime community. There's like people that are like lightly into it and like hearing about stories, and then there's like the community that that can hear these kind of crimes. Not it's not not everybody can, right? I mean it's it's it could be you know light you know the crimes could be light or they could be like this where right. it's just you're listening to it and it just like makes you sick. Yeah, you know. And no, so, this this turned my stomach like. I think this so one, bad. I still think this one and the Oakland County child killer uh, episode was probably the two worst for me. And the um the chicken coop murders. and the chicken coop yes yeah yes but anyway. 
Oh my gosh. Those okay. are probably the three worst for me. If I had to have a top three worst yeah, I'm episodes sorry. as far as content, like the content being like extreme, um, that would be it. Yeah. And, and if you were surviving to this point of the podcast, you guys deserve um, a special sticker because and, and a round you of made applause. It. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, so the couple was going to be tried together. After their arrest, Sharona Doe came forward and admitted the truth about the attack. She told the FBI that she was willing to testify, um, and she admitted that she lied about the three men attacking her, that it had never happened. And she said the only way she's going to testify, if they could guarantee her, that they would they could never hurt her. And the prosecutor is going to basically say, listen, you are going to help us put them away, and your charges are going to be in addition to a murder charge, that there's no way they're not going to go to jail for so that made her feel as if okay i can testify and tell my story right because now she doesn't need to be afraid of any repercussion from them correct and it's during this trial that amy doe is going to come forward as well the trial takes place in 2000 so a lot of their victims stayed quiet until that yeah i mean well they all felt like now they can come out and say hey listen this is what happened to me right april and amy come forward during the trial okay i mean mean, that's good i mean listen they're all victims and they need to have their stories heard so and another thing is that um during their trial they weren't charged with all of the attacks um so the attacks that were withheld were going to be mashad's daughter and christina and davidio's daughter and the reason why they did not charge them with those attacks was because they wanted that to be a safeguard if god forbid they didn't get slammed with this trial that they had that in their back pocket to try them again that's usually the tactic that prosecutors are going to use they're not going to try a serial perpetrator with all of their crimes at once just in case something goes wrong during the trial right it's a it's a backup plan basically and the victims knew that and with these um rape cases prosecutors well a good prosecutor is going to involve them in every decision based on the charges that are going to be held against them and the victims were um definitely involved which is good and they felt comfortable yeah of course after the prosecution presented its case Davidio's defense team called no witnesses. He basically knew, you know, what had taken place. Uh, Mashad, on the other hand, called into question the cause of death in relation to the Samson case. Um, the forensic pathologist did say that there is a possibility that when they strangled her that she just passed out and then she froze to death. But he was unable to determine if that was the case. Right. But in the end, it was determined that the str- if the strangulation caused her to pass out and then she was left outside, the strangulation is still responsible for her death. Right, of course. doesn't matter how she died. Like, I mean, they were still, they had her kidnapped, they, they, they assaulted her, and they strangled her. So it doesn't matter if, it, if she died from the strangulation or being out in the weather. I mean, Correct. she would never have been there. Right. <laughs> so... The defense was also trying to state that there was no way to tell if Vanessa had been raped because no signs of trauma 
had been seen during the autopsy. And that was true. The forensic pathologist did say there were no signs of sexual trauma on the body. However, she had been frozen and her body was left um, basically out to the elements. However, he did say, and this is something that I didn't, I didn't know the statistics of it, but when someone is sodomized in in 60% of the cases where someone has been sodomized, there's no indication of sexual trauma. And in 35% of cases of someone being raped, there's no signs of sexual trauma. Wow. I didn't know that either. Yeah. That's, it's sad because that's your evidence. Right. Right. Can you imagine being violated like that and then having them perform a rape kit and then saying there's no signs of sexual trauma? Imagine how that feels. But well, it yeah. happens in a yeah. lot of cases, statistically. Well, that's really bad for the victim, too, because yeah. you don't want to be labeled as someone that's lying after you've just been assaulted. Right. You know, that's that's terrible. Michaud tried to play the victim in her part of the trial, saying that um, she had the propensity to be controlled by someone else in a relationship because of her post-traumatic stress disorder that she had from the attacks of her father her time as a prostitute, and her relationship with DiVigio. Later in the hearing, DiVigio was going to make admissions in order to seek an easier sentence. He tried to claim that the relationship with Michaud had been very much equal, that she was just involved in the crimes as he was. In fact, a lot of it was her idea. Now, I think they're both equally culpable here, but um, I can see her trying to in a, in a desperate attempt to keep him with her, come up with some of these ideas. Oh, yeah, 100%. But, you know, it's crazy, though, because right now I, I even believe him more than I do her. Her, because only because, I mean, how can how can two, how can can only one person be involved when they're together committing right. these acts? Even if one person is doing it, you're still there. And it seems like you're taking pleasure in it, too. Correct. So it's not like, oh, like, you know, you're stuck with that. Like, let's say you're being stuck or forced to do something. It's a little different here. She is partaking in the crimes and the actions just exactly. like he is. Right. And sometimes it's it's a majority of yeah. her. Um, he also is going to love this trial. I mean, he's he thinks this is his, like, 15 minutes here. Which is so, gross. Disgusting. Yeah. Um. Now, the two, of course, like we said before, they, they turn on each other. And no matter what they say or what the defense tries to put out there, nothing speaks louder than the DNA evidence itself. On the counts of first-degree murder, two counts of oral copulation in concert force, one count of oral copulation on a person under the age of 18, kidnapping and rape by instrument, both defendants were found guilty and given life sentences. None of their appeals have been successful. But as we know in California, I mean, all death sentences have been halted. So they are never getting out of jail, which is, which is, I think, exactly where they need to be for the crimes they committed, the lives yeah. they ruined. And also to give those victims peace of mind that they're they're safe for the rest of their lives because they're stuck the you know the 
yeah. the perpetrators are not coming out of prison. So it's it's the perfect scenario, I think, now like right. with everything with how everything went down. Yeah, I think that that is some consolation to the victims, knowing that they're going to be safe and that they can heal and not have to worry about ever having to face their attackers again. And I hope that, you know, they went on to live good lives. I agree with you. That was a rough episode to get through. And my God, I'm going to erase all of this. from my. I'm not even saving the transcript of this episode. You know, it is done. I do have to say there are times that we finish episodes and I, and I look at you and I'm just like, can we just like delete, like, like delete, delete in that mind? in our heads? Yeah. Yeah. Backspace. For sure. And this is one of the, can we just like backspace real quick? God. Yeah. Um, before we go, we do want to thank our Patreon supporters, our new supporters. We appreciate you so much and we hope you're enjoying all of our episodes that we have out there. I think we're up to 31 or 32 episodes that we have out on Patreon. I think it's 30. Yeah. 31, 32. Um, the next episode for Patreon is going to be recorded next weekend and we can't wait to give that to you guys. But for now, we want to thank our new supporters. That's Andrea Gilbert and Kelly Buffone, who updated her pledge from $5 to $20. Wow. Kelly, that's great. Thank you so much. Yes. Lisa Henderson, Jamie Jones, Nick Corchain, Marg Tamney, Peach Pluff, Michelle Hamilton, Lynn Olive, Amy Rose Prats, Hope Rose, Katie Lawrence, Kim Garcia, Robin Heschels, Nicole Larimer, Stacy Van Doss, Al Ridley up their pledge from one to five dollars, Charlotte, Tara, and Kayla. Thanks guys so much for being Patreon supporters and we hope you're enjoying the episodes. If you'd like to join Patreon, you could join that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Sorry it was gross. Bye. (laughs) Bye, guys. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.